Okay, well, we are going to be jumping into Ecclesiastes. We are in week, I think this is week six. And so if you have a Bible, Red Pew Bible, turn to uh, chapter six in Ecclesiastes, which is going to be, or the end of chapter five, excuse me. It's going to begin on page 661, beginning in verse eight. <clears throat> So today is going to be primarily a conversation about money and wealth and a vision for money, wealth, and work. Do you have a vision for that? Who informs or what informs your vision for work, for your money, and for the wealth that you have, the little you have or the much that you have? Uh, Today the teacher is inviting us into his classroom the teacher who wrote this book, he's inviting us into his classroom to give us a vision of life and wealth and work in a life apart from God. We've talked about how there's kind of two visions of life in the book of Ecclesiastes. The one vision is, is a life apart from God. <clears throat> and the other is a vision of the same life with God. In this case, we're going to be seeing wealth through, you know, the, 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 the view, the reality of a life apart from God. And the same thing, though, placed within a life with God, I want to see the changes that happens when it comes to our understanding of money, our understanding of wealth, and our understanding of work that we are given here. So let's dive in. I hope this has been a meaningful sermon series for you guys. It's been the first time I've preached through the book of Ecclesiastes. I've been pleasantly surprised, actually by um, uh, digging through it with you guys. And so we're going to dive in here. Beginning of verse 8, we begin with a conversation of oppression and injustice when it comes to wealth. Um, If you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. We're going to be seeing more scripture, but let me just go ahead and pray for our time. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would, you would open up our hearts, Lord, to receive your word this morning. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed. We wouldn't be here for any other reason just than to meet you and to be transformed. Lord, to really truly live this life out in the kingdom, Lord. So be with us now. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So here he says, when you see the poor oppressed somewhere in a district or neighborhood or you know, see their rights denied and injustice present, don't be shocked, right? This has this been happening all throughout history in any culture, any society, any nation, any civilization. These things have been Present. And he says, even within the confines of authority, one in higher authority is kind of looking on the next rank below him and even, you know, taking advantage of them in order to enrich and find gain for themselves. Now, this is a conversation that came up a few weeks ago. There's some repetition in the book of Ecclesiastes, but Christians should really care about this conversation of injustice and oppression, especially when it comes to wealth. Um, because as we've already seen, a part of the broken way of life in this world includes oppression. When someone is denied justice in their rights, almost always there's going to be two motivations. One of them is going to be money, and the close runner-up is power, right? Money and power. 
you seldom can find those things, those two things separated. Money in our own nation has a long and complicated history of, of people groups being oppressed even in our own land for others to become more wealthy. But right now, I just want to share a couple of stories that um, you might not know about, things, realities that are shocking that nobody ever talks about where this is present. Like, did you guys know that there are such things as privately owned prisons in our country? Some of you know this? Privately owned prisons. These privately owned prisons get contracts from the government to house the inmates. Um, it's not difficult to consider problems of incentives. They have lobbyists who go to congressmen to encourage um, making certain sentences for crimes longer in order that their contracts to you know, pay and feed the prisoners can increase because the prisoners stay longer and they make more money. That doesn't sound right, if you ask me. Something smells funky with that. Doesn't, doesn't feel like that should be happening, but it happens in our own country. There's over two million people incarcerated last year, and a lot of that is through private prisons where they are today. Now that's on our own shores, okay, where there's money and things happening and there's you know, injustice present. Let's go offshore today in Congo, Africa, where 75% of the world's supply of cobalt is found. Modern-day slavery is alive and well. The mineral needed for rechargeable batteries. If you have a rechargeable battery in your house, chances are it came from this mine. We're just now learning about this through some whistleblowers. Uh, the mineral needed for rechargeable batteries is cobalt. It's found in so many of the cheap Chinese imports. And literal modern-day slavery is practice. Men, women, children working on these mines for a mere dollar a day in horrid conditions. Moms literally have infants strapped to their backs working 12 hours a day with their little kids working alongside of them, sifting through dirt trying to find cobalt. It's hard in America for us to, to grasp those kinds of conditions. But the truth is they exist because you and I buy stuff with it off the cheap labor and it's cheap for us and we consume, right? We don't see it. It's out of sight, out of mind, but it's a reality. And in Christians, we should, we should talk about these things, right? We should talk about these things. The wealthy corporations got very smart and, and took it off of our shores to do it elsewhere and then just sell it to us for cheap and we don't see it because we don't often think about it. We're on top of the world in America at so many people's expense globally. Our standard of living is off of cheap materials and it creates a way of life for you and I that's really not reality. I mean, guaranteed most things in our homes are not made in America. They're from other countries, from similar working conditions, and it's cheap for us to, to buy them because of what's happening overseas. Now, as Christians, you know, whether it's food, clothing, food, clothing, TVs, phones, furniture, you name it, right? All these things built on the backs of cheap labor around the world for you and I to have cheap products to consume. As Christians, we should have a conversation about this. Where is our money being spent? Are you careful with the things that you buy? Looking, where is this from? What are the conditions that is coming? Because there's a way of life under the sun that is not part of God's ideal that contributes to some of the evil and the corruption that comes from sin that is present in this world. And this is one of those things we don't talk about a lot. Our purchasing can actually encourage these things. So consider that, right? We should care where our money goes because those conditions that we're talking about, that is not how things are supposed to be. Verse 9 kind of gives a little bit of a glimpse of the ideal, right? It says, the increase from a land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. 
All people should take benefit for the economy. All people, not just a little bit. You're not just one little group of people benefiting. All people should benefit from work. We'll see God created work. There's a vision that God put in place for work for the good of this world. We'll get to that later in our sermon. But all people should benefit from God's beautiful design of work and not just a few. I mean, we see in scripture, King Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, in 1 Kings 12, um, um, he, he carried forward Solomon's use of cheap labor for his building projects and actually split the kingdom in half, right? There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to these realities. But the idea of why greed, because ultimately this stuff is driven by greed from corporations and et cetera, but greed can thwart this ideal. The desire for more money can thwart this ideal because greed is personal. Greed is selfish. Greed hasn't focused the individual or a select few and pays little mind to those around. And it wants to feed itself even more at the expense, often at the expense of those around. So whether it's on a massive scale, like the stories I just shared, or on smaller scales in our day-to-day life, the goal is always the same, the love of wealth, right? The desire for more, for more, for more, it leads to a life ultimately that is just nothing but navel-gazing, staring at your own belly button, curving in, saying Augustine describes sin as a curving in on itself. And that's what happens. As we move forward here in the conversation about money and greed and wealth, um, as we move forward, the teacher brings us to a realization of the love of money that if you love wealth, and we all know this to be true, if you love money, you'll only want more of it. You'll never find yourself in the place where you say, ah, this is enough. Let's go on to verse 10. Whoever loves money will never, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefits are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Now, the New Testament repeats the same idea, 1 Timothy 3.16, for the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Anything like greed or the love of money that takes our eyes and places it on ourselves, on our own situations, and says, this is all that matters, that is why the love of money will fail you. Because as we are about to see your heart, these are the deepest of, of, of holes and wells. I have to get nerdy and go to a Star Wars analogy because it's a great analogy. Any Star Wars fans out there? I know, there you go, Brittany. She, she beats me though, but she's my, my Star Wars nerd sister here. Um, there's this monster called a Sarlacc, right? And it's in the ground and its mouth is the hole. Okay, it's just a big giant hole. It's just in the ground. Things fall in there, you feed it. The mouth actually just never really closes. It just is like permanently yeah, open always just kind of eating. And I think like, that's such a good image of our heart, is it not? It's just this big open hole inside of us. It's just like, ah, oh, more, more, more. But it never actually closes its mouth and says, ah, oh, enough. It remains open to infinitely keep consuming and keep swallowing, keep receiving, and keep, keep, keep going, going, going. It never says enough is enough. It's always looking and open for more, never closing in satisfaction. More money will only invite you to need more money, to think you need more money. More goods will only lead to you wanting more to consume. 
the fascinating thread in Ecclesiastes is that life under the sun has you at the center. We've seen this over and over and over again. That's the center of the life under the sun. If God is absent, you are present. You are at the center. If God is not at the center, eventually you become the center. Life with God is not about you, rather about God and others. It's radically simple, but on every page of our Bibles. But we have to pay close attention to this kinds of conversation. Because nowhere does the Bible say money is bad. Nowhere does it say wealth is evil. Earning money is not bad. Right? The teacher doesn't condemn money in and of itself. The truth is, the poorest person and the richest person can both be equally greedy. Hungry for money. Right? Because it's a state of heart, what it is. It's something within us right that lust for money and that greed for more wealth but there's something else in this text that is kind of in between the lines somewhat that's present that we're going to look at and more at the end of our sermon but it's a vision of work and why you work um i think in america for the most part if you were born and raised in america or been through america's schooling um it may not sometimes it's very explicitly said this way sometimes it's more of like an indirect thing but why do you go to work well, it's not for work's sake. It's for the paycheck, of course, right? That's why you work. You just want the paycheck. You just want to go home, right? In so many ways, when we think of work and the labor we're given, we're not really taught to have much of a vision in our country other than, well, how big is the paycheck? How much taxes are missing? Oh, how can I increase this and have more? Do I need to work more hours? All right, whatever. I just need to have more, more, more. Well, that's why I get a job. That's why I went to college, right? It's to get a better paycheck than not going to college. Is that the vision? Is that the, the, the vision here for why we work in our country? And sadly, in the life under the sun in America, I often think that's the case. And it's a miserable view of waking up. Even if you're in the middle of your career this morning, if you're retired, if you're still in school trying to get your career off the path, if your view of waking up and the work that's ahead of you is just like, oh, I have to do what today? That's a miserable, day of time, uh, miserable way of waking up every single day, just working for the sake of the paycheck coming and looking forward only for the gap of time on the weekends when you have days off or when you're not working because that's the second thing you're working for is the time that you're not working, right? Now, as Christians, we're not called to think like Americans in this regard, right? There's this American dream of always, you know, we're working to see everything always increasing, our wealth always increasing, things always moving forward, the idea that every generation should be way more wealthy than the previous generation, and that, you know, we should be living better than our parents did, and it's all be always increasing, increasing. Well, this actually ends up breeding nothing but cynicism, breeding nothing but discontent, because that dream will never be fulfilled. It's never going to come about. You'll always be looking for the next step in that dream and actually breed cynicism when you realize you can't actually find it and it's just out of grasp. A glimpse of the God vision of life, we get a little glimpse of it here in verse 12 and more explicitly at the end of the chapter. It says this, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Is the joy of work more valuable than the money earned? That's a question that surfaces, right? Is the work itself actually more valuable than the paycheck or the money earned from that work? Is the value of your work and its meaning determined by the amount on that check? In America, of course it is, right? 
the better the job, the more money it makes. In scripture, no. I don't think that's really quite the vision God has in mind. Right? Anybody, for example, if you're a mom in this room and you raised children, um, it's one of the most intense jobs that doesn't earn you money but takes away your money. Right? There's no paycheck attached to rearing children. Right? But what's the vision for that kind of work? If it's only, if, if you want more money in life, we definitely shouldn't have kids because kids are expensive. But is that the vision for it? Right? I literally just saw a late night TV show just put out a horrible kind of little skit just about this, you know, the, these people who are just bragging about all the money they have because they never had kids as if like, look at all this cash I have. And it's all there because I didn't have kids. Like, is that really the cheapness in our country of how we think about things? Really? Is that really what we've come? That's a comedy scale. People are laughing. Oh, it's really funny. Is it though? Is that really how things have been reduced in our country? It's like, well, why are you, you know, to be a teacher in our country? You're not doing that for a paycheck. There's a greater vision attached to that. There's something more important than the paycheck when you're a teacher, right? But our country, we don't value, we don't value that kind of work. So we're going to talk more about this at the end, but a perspective on your work and life of God can bring about a sweet sleep that says, man, my work is valuable, even if I'm making a lot of money or not, and it helps me sleep at night. That's what he is talking about. We'll move on to that more at the end. But before we get there, verse 13, he moves on to a, the reality of, of, of money. If we're desiring more of it, he wants to state a very obvious fact that money is temporal. Money is temporal. It's not permanent. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. So in, in these scriptures here, we see that realizing wealth, no matter how much you have, it could be lost. It could be lost in the snap of a finger. Now, imagine winning one of those most recent billion-dollar lotteries, right? You would think, well, I could just spend money all day long and just like, it's just infinite, right? Did you know that 70% of lottery winners, regardless of the pot that they win, that they're broke in seven years? Money is temporal. It is not a good God. God is eternal. God is infinite. Money in and of itself is temporal. A life crisis can take it all away. One little bad investment, it's all gone, right? Sickness can come about and drain it all away, right? Whatever, something can happen and the money can just vanish. We hear these stories and it's a real thing. If you have it, you are not guaranteed to have it forever. So for those who think that all of life's meaning is wrapped up in those numbers in your bank account, beware. God could take that from you in order to tell you there's something greater out there of meaning and you're looking for these numbers in your account to provide it I can take it away from you right don't bow to that it's a poor cheap counterfeit God we're given a very stark image in these next verses here beginning of verse 15 naked a man comes from his mother's womb and as he comes so he departs he takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. This is life under the sun, apart from God. This is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? 
All of his days he eats in darkness of great frustration, affliction, and anger. You don't pop out of the womb with a Rolex and Yeezys on, right? Doesn't happen. You come out, I call them fresh babies because they're fresh right when they come out, right? And they got nothing. The most harmless of creatures, right? And when you die, when that, before that last breath is had, you don't have a U-Haul attached to your coffin saying, well, I get to carry all of my stuff with me into my next destination. It's not how it works. That's not the reality. The same way you came in is the same way you're leaving. What does that change in terms of your thought process of your work today? How does that change your perspective to say, yeah, like, wait, what am I working for today? Right? If I can't take things, if I'm, if I'm leaving the same way I came in, then like, what am I leaving behind? What is the true product of my labor in this short, brief life that we have that's over and just in the grand scheme of eternity, just a little spray from a bottle, the mist goes, like that's how short our lives are, right? It's here and it's gone. What are you laboring for today that you are taking with you into the next life? Um, at this point, hopefully, he's painting a very clear image here. Um, uh, wealth cannot provide meaning. Money cannot provide the meaning your heart is looking for. That's the, this life under the sun, okay? Um, I hope that's clear. And he's going to transition now to life under God. Um, what about our work and our money and life with God? Right? Money is not evil. We, we said this. Right? We tried to kind of dismantle this Amer- very American kind of Western attitude about money and what scripture teaches here. But what about money and work beneath God? How is our understanding of money and wealth changed when we first look to God according to the teacher? So um, beginning of verse 18, we get this um, non-cynical, now positive vision for life here beneath God. Verse 18. Then I realized... That it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Now, how do you find more joy in your labor and in your work, more joy in the work than in the money earned? How do you find more joy in the labor and the work in life and not in less in the money earned from it? When you examine your life as a gift from God coming from him, that huge monstrous hole in your heart that's always crying out more, 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 when you exchange all those things and put the infinite God there, when he places his Holy Spirit in you, that huge hole that nothing can fill begins to finally, as if like the the lost key to the keyhole, it meets its maker and it says, this, this is it. This is so much better than the other stuff that I was trying to feed it with, right? You realize a wonderful truth that the work given to us in life. You look back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Work was not part of the curse. Work was actually part of paradise. Work was not part of the curse. Work was part of 
paradise. Humans, uh, Genesis 2, 15, God put man in the garden to work and to keep it. Before sin, before anything fell apart, work was beautiful. Work was part of the good design of God where he looked and said, this is good. This man's working. This is wonderful, right? Friends, work and labor was part of paradise. It's supposed to be sweet and it can be joyful, right? Tim Keller, uh, he writes a lot about this topic, Pastor Tim Keller. He points out that we don't as much need the money from our work to survive as we do need the work to survive. There's dignity in work whether there's a big paycheck attached or not. Because work is a part of the joyful and beautiful design of human beings from God. And don't just think that I'm talking about a work that you clock in and clock out of with a salary attached. Work in our life comes in so many various forms, right? For some people, it's simply parenthood. For some people, it's, it's being in school right now, being in college and laboring in the classroom, right? And that's your work in front of you. Some people... Um, it, it, it comes in all, in all shapes and sizes. If you're retired, you have a different kind of work ahead of you. But the, nevertheless, in all those shapes and sizes of work, you were created for that. And it's sweet. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing from God. He worked for six days creating all this beauty around us. God himself worked. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, he says, go to the humans, his image bears, go and take hold of this beautiful world. My translation, this is like a big ball of Play-Doh, Adam and Eve. And I want you to go make awesome, amazing things out of the thing that I just created. Go subdue it. Go bring beauty out of the beauty that I created. You're, you're made to do this. And it's beautiful. Beneath God, there is a vision that can be given to us for the work. How are we contributing to the common good? How does our work serve others? How does our work contribute justly to those around us? If you're an employer and an employer, you have the chance to pay a fair wage to workers rather than increase your own at the expense of their lower wage. In our broken world, our work can help provide in this dark place a glimpse of the shalom of the wholeness that God designed this world to be in. If you have the chance, yeah, I just said that, right? You can pay a fair wage. If you are passing along the joy of work and a fair wage of someone else as a steward, right? Your, your own joy from your work can bleed onto those around them. They can, they can catch your own understanding of work beneath God. But the secret that is found in all of this, there's a secret. There's a secret layer in all of this. And it sustains this. And it's joy. When we find joy in our work, we're finding God in our work. When we find joy in our work, we're going to be getting a glimpse of God. In verse 19, it says, whenever we work, whether much or little with God, we find the ability to enjoy it. We have God, and with God is the identity of work. Now, I want you to understand something that I believe, and one commentator said this, and I, it's an amazing thought, and I believe it's completely true, that joy itself, when you find joy in something, it's a revelation of God. Listen to this quote from one theologian. He said this, the joy of the heart must be something like divine revelation. When we experience joy, at least in one small amount, we, can, we, we come to touch with the sense of things which normally God alone sees. We're catching the divine perspective when we find joy, especially in our work. Before God sent his people to the promised land, he told them uh, uh, after they arrived, he said the possibilities 
of what's to come in the promised land. Deuteronomy 12, verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord in the promised land. You shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice all of your households and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall rejoice. Joy would mark their being in the promised land and the work that is before them. These kinds of verses are incredibly abundant all over scripture. I could read a hundred of them to you and only scratch the surface because life in God is a life of joy and contentment, not dependent on money or wealth to bring about such joy. Beneath God, everything in which we have can be seen as a gift. Everything becomes a gift. And the greater reward is the work that we are given to do before God. Here's another description, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite verses now. I just don't know why I haven't captured this. You know, I read it this week, and it's just been in my heart and my mind so much, coming out of the, the, the prophet Jeremiah in, in chapter 31, verse 12. Another, in, this, in the context here, they have been kicked out of the promised land because of sin, but now they're being brought back. It's a future looking to the exiles returning to the land one day, and this is what Jeremiah says. He says, they will come home and sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. They will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts, the abundant crops of grain, the new wine and olive oil and the healthy flocks and herds. Listen to this, listen to this imagery. Their life will be like as a watered garden and all of their sorrows will be gone. That's possible here, a glimpse of that is possible beneath God. You think of a, of a garden in its prime in the middle of the summer. It's overgrown. The plants are weighing heavy with just the ripe fruit, right? There's just an abundance of just green and the smells of the, of the vegetable plants. You know, those of you who garden know what I'm talking about, right? And he's saying that could be our life here with God. And it drains away the sorrows that could be present, all this is available, available to us today, especially now, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death doing away with sin, his resurrection becoming a glimpse of the age to come when death will be gone, and the gift of his spirit has sealed for us the reality of that future age to come, but now is even in breaking on the moment, right? We know that in the future, Eden will be restored. Read the last few pages of your Bibles. We see that when he returns, heaven meets earth. But today, when Jesus is here, he said the kingdom of heaven is here. It is breaking into this current reality, that future age to come. He wants us to work and to live and have a vision of our work and a vision of our money today as if we are in his kingdom now. Within its reality, within its power, Jesus is king, empowered and transformed, transforming us now by the spirit of God today. Then what becomes of money? What becomes of wealth? It becomes a gift from God. It does not become a God. It becomes a gift from God, not something we bow down to, but rather a gift. In America, it's a counterfeit God, but in Christ, it's a gift to where we can open hands and say, thank you, Jesus for the little I have, but for the much I have. What a gift. Thank you. I'm not enslaved to this. I'm free from my money. They don't have chains around my wrists. I'm free from it. Are you free from your money? Are you truly free? Do you have anxiety right now wanting to pull out your bank account thinking, I don't know if I got five bucks there. Or no, like, are, are you free from your money? 
Are you obsessed with looking at its height and depth if you have stocks and everything's collapsing around? Like, are you, are you just freaked out because it's... Like, are you free from your money? There's freedom available for you, friends. I'm going to read a couple of things from the New Testament now from the Apostle Paul. Uh, talk about a man who was free from these things. Philippians 4. There's a good chunk of scripture here, verses 10 through 12. He's in jail, all right? And being in jail in Rome, was, it's a rough situation to be in. But he, he's what he writes. He received a gift um, from some churches to kind of help sustain him as he's in, in prison. This is what he writes in response. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that it now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Listen, if you're asleep, wake up. You wake up, good. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now let's slap that verse off coffee cups we're about to read. Um, Tonight, the Super Bowl, somebody's going to score a touchdown. See, Philippians 4.13. No, that's not what it's about, scoring touchdowns. It's about this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What are the all things? Finding contentment regardless of what my circumstances are. Regardless if I have a lot or if I have little, doesn't matter. I'm content because I have Jesus Christ and he is with me and he will sustain me. So regardless, I can do all of this in him who strengthens me. That is what Paul is saying. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift. This is how unattached he is to his stuff. We don't know how big the gift was, but he was like, thanks for the gift, but that's not my, that's not my, my biggest joy here. What's his biggest joy? I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you have sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's writing a worship little you know, paragraph here saying, I am drawn to worship from your generosity. And the generosity is great, but you know what? You're going to get blessed because of what you did for me. And that makes me super excited, even more excited than the gift you gave me. Just the thought of you and the blessing you're getting from your generosity, that is way better than this gift. To God be the glory. That's Paul's attitude. He's free from money. He's free from prosperity. He's free from being brought low. Those things don't matter. He's so oriented towards God and others. I pray we can catch what Paul found because it's available to you and I through the Spirit. And again, he wrote this while being in prison. So as we close, I want to call the worship team up at this point. We have a a song we're going to end with and we're going to have prayer available. Do you have a vision for your work? Do you? When's the last time you actually thought, you stopped and you prayed and thought about why? Tomorrow morning you wake up, it's Monday, okay? Are you going to have a case of the Mondays? Or are you going to wake up with a fresh vision that says, I get to go to work tomorrow? What a gift. What a gift. Whatever it is, whatever might be before you, 
right? Whatever stage of life you're in, there's, there is work for you. Whether there's a paycheck attached to it or not, there's work for you. Do you catch the vision? God created you for that. Enjoy it. It's a gift that you get to do. Share in that. Through Christ, in Christ, through his spirit, God can transform your heart to enjoy your labor. Even difficult and low-paying jobs, even high-paying and stressful work. So tomorrow morning you can rise out of bed excited and ready than just already dreaming of Saturday morning. Number two, does your spending of your own money contribute to good wages and employment? Or is your spending contributing to unjust working conditions? We began with that, and it's a worthy question. Your spending habits should be contributing to other people's flourishing. Consider that here in our country. Christians, we should be concerned about that. Number three, do you have it all while having no joy in it? And that's how chapter six continues. If you want to read chapter six, he sees another evil in life under the sun, people having it all but having no joy. Having it all but having no joy. I feel like that's so much of our own country, is it not? We have it all. And statistically, we are the most joyless, depressed generation right now has ever been in America, but we're the most prosperous we've ever been. We have it all, but we have no joy in it. Does joy mark you? If I inquired of those closest to you, would you be known as a joyful person or a person who was cynical? Saying, well, I don't want to do this. A grumbler. I can be guilty of grumbling. Don't ask my wife how often I grumble. Just don't ask her. Because this is my battle, right? Some of us, we're wired to be grumblers. Are you known as one who complains? Are you known as one who is cynical? As one who is always wanting more and never content? But Jeremiah, like he said, you can, right now with God's presence through this Holy Spirit, you can, your life can be like a well-watered garden. You don't have to be cynical. You can be thankful for what you have. Um, Philippians 4, 4, earlier in that chapter, Paul said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Say that with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. But he's not done. Again, I say rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice always rejoice. I'm going to read this as we close. This is, somebody wrote this in their journal. I'll tell you who in a minute. But listen to these words. You have made me so rich, O God. Please let me share out of your beauty with an open hand. My life has become an uninterrupted dialogue with you, of God, one great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my, I raise my eyes towards your heavens and tears sometimes run down my face. Tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night too when I lie in my bed and rest in you, oh God, tears of gratitude run down my face and they become my prayer. I have been terribly tired for several days, but that too will pass. Things come and go in a deeper rhythm, and people must be taught to listen. It is the most important thing we have to learn in this life. I always end up with just one single word, God. The beat of my heart has grown deeper and more active and yet more peaceful. And it is as if I were at all the time storing up more inner riches. These words were penned on the 18th of August, 1943, by Eddie Hillisum, who was writing them from a concentration camp 
in Holland, the Westport concentration camp. He was transferred to Auschwitz just three months later where she died. In Christ, even more joy is accessible. May we this morning, as we close in worship, and for those in need of prayer, may we experience the joy of Christ. I pray that God gives you that this morning. It will transform us.